Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we get to know Jimmy McMillan, Senior Legal Counsel at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. New task, though, one added on top of that. He is the Speedways and the NTT IndyCar Series Chief Diversity Officer. What exactly does that entail? Well, we asked Jimmy to help explore that. It's a fascinating duty, fascinating responsibility that should forever change IMS and IndyCar. More medium and long term, but he is working every day tirelessly, as we find, to make a short-term impact as well. We open this conversation wanting to get to know the man himself. Fascinating upbringing. Really do appreciate all that Jimmy has achieved, knowing that there are plenty of obstacles put in his way. And his passion and enthusiasm for motor racing, the Speedway, IndyCar, and creating a bigger and more inclusive family, both on the fan side, on the team side, managerial, engineering, driver, you name it. This is what we explore as we get to know Jimmy McMillan here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. Jimmy was really excited to see your promotion within the Indianapolis Motor Speedway hierarchy under Penske Entertainment's oversight and such knowing that you had been part of IMS, part of the uh, leadership there from a legal capacity, but really, truly excited to see you named as the uh, Speedway's IndyCar Series as well, Chief Diversity Officer. And so it just occurred to me that you are going to be someone that is shaping and dictating some really important things for the future And I feel so dumb and ignorant for not knowing enough about you. So that's why I really appreciate you taking some time here for us to just learn about you and your world and what it is you're doing today. But I figure before we get there, Jimmy, let's start at the beginning. Where do you come from? Tell me about where you grew up, your parents, your people. You know, what's the world that you came into and the people that were around it and shaping it? Thank you, Marshall, for taking the time to talk to me today. I greatly appreciate it. And I don't know if my story is as interesting as the story of all of our drivers and staff and people who work at IMS and IndyCar, but I'll try to help you. I'm from the south side of Chicago, an area called the Wild Hundreds. Um, grew up on the south side, went to public school. And uh, my mom was a teacher. She taught special education for about 36 years. And uh, my dad did not have a job uh, for most of my life. Uh, and actually kind of shaped the story that I have. Um, He had an alcohol problem. And so because I grew up where I grew up in, I grew up kind of a gang, the old school uh, disciples and vice lords and all the stories you hear about Chicago. Yeah. My mom decided to let me move out of Chicago and go to college at 16. And I went to Michigan State University. And then while I was there, uh, my father threatened to shoot me in a dorm. And so I hid out in Detroit. Um, and then transferred to IU Bloomington, where my stepbrother uh, was going to school. I had a stepbrother was nine years older than me. And then about three months later, my father shot my mother um, over remote control. And I flunked out of college and ended up working odd jobs at Best Buy, um, Firestone. Actually ended up working for Firestone in Bloomington. And that kind of led to the pathway of me ending up here. I knew nothing about racing. 
and the guys in the shop were all from Bloomington and Bedford, and they used to listen to the race on uh, Sundays in the garage. And they used to tease me all the time, and they taught me about racing through listening to it on the radio, and then they took me to my first NASCAR race, the Brickyard 400. And the minute I heard the cars crank up, I became a fan, and that became my favorite sport. And I became a huge Tony Stewart fan, uh, watched every race to watch him, loved him to death. Um, and that kind of became my entree into racing. And from that, I got back in school, um, graduated, went to law school here in Indianapolis, and then went on to clerk for Justice Frank Sullivan on the Indiana Supreme Court and worked uh, as a partner in the law firm of Barnes and Thornburg for 12 years before I decided to come here on May 2nd, 2016 and become the senior corporate counsel for IMS IndyCar and IMS Productions. And then last October was named as the chief diversity officer. So that's my story in a small <laughs> nutshell. You could retire now, Jimmy, and have done more in your life than most of us. A um, couple things there that really stand out to me I'd love to explore. So first of all, nothing but amens and blessings and thank yous to your mother knowing that having a parent as an educator, that's one thing. Not a surprise that her son proved to be excellent from a scholastic standpoint, but teaching special needs as well, that's another layer, not only of heart, but also there's a willpower behind that because this isn't just teaching fifth grade, physical education, uh, English. This is something that requires real deep extensions of a person and their commitment. Uh, and I would also say yet again, and uh, I would assume a demonstration of a pretty big heart. Tell me about her. Cause I have a feeling she was a pretty big influence on who you've become. Absolutely. And she's, she survived thankfully and actually lives in Indianapolis and is a huge, uh, willpower fan now, but she initially was from Louis. She's born in Louisville, Mississippi and knew nothing about racing before I came here. She actually asked me when I took the job, she said, are you sure that place is going to stay in business? Uh, and she was quite, quite concerned <laughs> that I was making a huge mistake, leaving a big, big white shoe law firm to come here. And I said, my, I think, uh, you know, Eli Lilly's more likely to move to Mexico before they close the Indianapolis. <laughs> so, uh, but she, you know, is one of the, the most phenomenal uh, women in the world. She shapes, and I think you're you're right on with her uh, deep passion for children and the, the the time and effort and love and passion she showed to the kids in her classroom. That drives me, and that's what she raised uh, me with which drives me to help anywhere I can to uh, give every minute of my time to try to give back and try to help uplift people through mentoring and advocacy, involvement, fundraising. Um, it's something that my mother still has today. My mother will cook, you know, for the whole city of Indianapolis's motorcycle community. If I bring them over on the drop of a dime, she'll barbecue for the whole city. And it'll be, you know, hundreds of bikes outside of my, my mother will be running around um, you know, trying to make sure everybody has something to drink, everybody's barbecuing, and believe me, she has tables in her backyard to seat everybody. But that's just the way 
she is and it's the way she raised me. So I definitely carry the spirit of my mother and the desire to make her proud. Uh, one of the things I promised God, if he let her live when, I, when she was in the hospital was that if she let, if he let my mother live, I would graduate from college and I would work every day of my life to make my mother proud. Wow. And, uh, that is something that has meant a lot to me. She recently, she only recently told me about, I think it was two years ago, she brought my kids and I got, I have twin boys who are 12 years old and I think they were 10. She bought my boys in the kitchen, bought me in the kitchen and she said to my boys, I want to tell you something. And I want to tell your father something from this day forward. He's a man. And I knew what she was trying to tell them, but in her eyes, she was like, I don't have to worry about your father anymore. I don't have to take care of your father anymore. Your father's demonstrated time and time again, he's a man. And it meant the world to me, um, for my mother to say that, um, you know, my mother's not easy to please. So, you know, all of that drives and lives in me every day. Also would love to visit a minute, Jimmy, with your father and yes. that influence on your life, knowing that you growing up with challenging existence, walking out of the front door, right? You cannot go further than the steps uh, without having to look at a hostile world and it potentially consuming you and taking you. That's something first and foremost to be concerned about. Uh, I know that is not the life and existence I had growing up. Uh, my wife did growing up in a very hostile area, uh, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, but I know through her story, the threats and risks posed to her growing up in the projects, uh, at least in her life story. There was also strife in her world as well, somewhat on the, the family front too. What was it like for you having a bit of that dual concern, knowing that your father, with what you mentioned, uh, his, his fights with alcoholism, plus growing up, in an environment where just walking out the door could be life threatening. How did these things shape you inside the house and outside the house? Cause I haven't met anyone, Jimmy, who's escaped such things and been completely freed from them and how their lives have evolved. I think it's interesting and it's, you know, it's somewhat relevant to this conversation, not only about diversity, but I think in the outreach of sports, right? So, so many people in my neighborhood were motivated either academically or athletically, not necessarily by the sheer desire to go have fun, but the life, the real life opportunity to get out. And that changes your perception, right? If you're operating out of fear, for me, I did well in school because my mother explained that that was the pathway for me to get away from my father and get out of the neighborhood. And when I finally did get away from, from school and I was able to go to college, I had to redefine in that moment, why am I here? Mm. Like now that I'm away, now what? And and redefine my why and redefine my what. And that's different. You know, when people ask me, who do I credit the most for my success? I have to credit my father because in, in my father's actions, he drives and motivates even today so many things that I do in terms of not giving up and not quitting 
or trying to be a role model to my own sons or how I address certain situations, um, how I walk and talk because my mother drilled in me so much not to be not to be like my father. And so that motivating factor is 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 heavy, uh, almost maddening at times. Right. Mm. At the same time, I worry about my own sons because they don't live that life. They don't have that experience. They have the exact opposite. I'm as, I'm as loving and hugging and, you know, uh, as, as, as a father could possibly be. They're around me all the time. One wants to be in go-karting uh, and is involved in NXG Youth Motorsports, really heavy. Uh, the other one, both of them play soccer, but the other one is a, is a little soccer all-star. And so my experience with my kids is totally different than theirs. And I wonder what will be their motivation and what will be their driving factor because not just for me, I could say for pretty much a lot of my cousins, particularly my male cousins, we all had the same story. Our dads were all the same for the most part. And um, that was our drive. We really didn't get to see a lot of examples of really good fathers who do what we kind of do in this generation today. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this generation, particularly of black males, grow up when they aren't growing up in some of the horrific situations that we grew up in. Last thing I want to touch on here, if it's okay, Jimmy, is this is who you have evolved into and become. Was there a point in your life where you felt and recognized these dueling things within you, your mother reach higher, achieve more, there you can absolutely lift and reach upwards and go to amazing places in life but there's a commitment you have to make to yourself to do that and everything that was negative and driving you as well again you have your mother which we could say very positive force you have the potential of the opposite side of the experiences through uh, your father that could either pull you away or motivate and inspire you. And therefore, I guess, help turbocharge that message from your mom. Was there a point where you felt these things working and coming together in your life that then resulted in the action? Definitely. When I, when I got back into school, um, that was the process that wasn't easy. So I had to take independent study classes because they would not let me back in the classroom. I had to figure out how I could get back in school. I was working, um, doing tires at Firestone and then work my way up to assistant manager. And so that wasn't easy. Um, so I had a couple of different aspects, but at that time, that process of getting back in school and then doing extremely well, um, when I got back first straight A's and B's the first year I got back straight A's. The second year I was back, but still graduating from undergrad with a 2.4 GPA and um, trying to apply to law school and people telling me, I don't know if you're going to be able to get in. Your GPA is really low. I ended up scoring high on the LSAT, I study hard. I mean, at that time, it really kicked in that I could be different, that, that, that I was not going to let my circumstance drag me down and that it wasn't the, the situation I was in had nothing to do with my academic ability. Um, my ability to learn, my ability to study, but had to do with my circumstance. And that is the case for so many people that it's not that they can't learn or they can't um, do it. It's that they 
sometimes situations and circumstances put them in a place that they that they're not allowed to. It's, it's arrogance in some ways that some people think, hey, I just went to school, I went to college, I graduated, I had it all together and I made it. And they don't realize how blessed they were that had they been born in a different family or had they been born in a different circumstances, they could be the same person, but not accomplish what they need to accomplish just by circumstances. And thankfully I was blessed to be able to make it through mine. And, and I think it's a constant discovery process. You know, I just, when I had kids, I, I became a father. So I had to decide what type of father was I going to be. Was I going to be the father that my father was? Or was I going to redefine fatherhood in a way that I had not personally seen? Mm. I, I have not lived with the father that I am today. Uh, it was the father that I wanted to see. It was the father I watched on TV. Maybe I thought, you know, this is the TV dad, but I never, I've never seen this version of dad. And you're constantly, you know, in that battle. I grew up in a neighborhood where I could probably go home right now. And if I just stay within, you know, 20 blocks of my house, I don't necessarily, I won't necessarily see a white person for weeks. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, as I started matriculating up through college and of course, when I went to law school and then certainly when I was at the law firm, I started being in an environment where I might not see a black person all day, um, depending on where I was at. And that was a shift to have to learn how do you how do you deal with that how do you maintain your sense of self without feeling like i need to assimilate or i need to fit a certain mold or maybe i'm not speaking the right way or maybe i'm not maybe i'm not wanted here maybe um you know i'm here because of some number or some whatever but figuring out how do i maintain me but be in these environments and you're constantly developing growing and changing to try to, you know, get to where you want to be. What I also find so fascinating about you, Jimmy, and maybe it, it's starting with your most recent post, that being chief diversity officer, but working back a little bit, you obviously had options in terms of education on what direction to follow. And by the way, being excellent at mounting tires, is not a bad thing. But I, I've done that a lot myself. And also while doing that, I've said to myself, Pruitt, there's more. There's, there's more. <laughs> you can do more. Tell me about the decision to head towards law. Because that I, I, I don't want to apply a, a blanket statement here. But I know that for folks who have grown up and been in environments that seemed a bit out of control, uh, at times or for large periods of their lives. And this has, there's no race or gender attached to this. I've just noticed quite often with folks who I've met, who've gone into law enforcement, yourself as a lawyer, uh, those in, you know, management administration and whatnot. I find it's not uncommon to learn that sometimes they've grown up in an environment where they didn't feel like they had a lot of control over things and they move into uh, an education path or a career path where there is that aspect and infrastructure for them. Is there anything there for you? I'm curious what led you to, uh, to becoming a lawyer. Well, Marshall, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that also relates to what we're trying to accomplish with this race for equality and change. When I grew up on the South side of Chicago and you, you were uh, African-American in school, you pretty much have five options presented to you. That was lawyer, doctor, teacher, 
engineer something with computers. And beyond that, some football, basketball. The amount, the, the, the amount of things that exist in this world that you are not exposed to when you grow up um, in certain areas of the country, the things that you never see, you don't, you don't even, you couldn't even dream that these fields, fields exist. Um, you don't even know that people make money doing certain things. Um, I did, those are the five things I thought. And then of course, be a preacher. And so law really, really appealed to me out of those five choices I had. And it's really about what you're exposed to. Those things were things that we were exposed to. When you talk about law enforcement and police and firefighters, there are certainly a, a, a lot, you see more uh, people of color who sometimes go into those fields because it's what you see. It's not because that's the only thing we want to do. And so when you look at racing and you look at motorsports, part of the reason why I think we are where we are at in terms of the lack of representation in, in the sport is because some of it is just, it's just not in those neighborhoods, right? It's not what you're exposed to. It's not what you're taught. Um, there's nobody who's bringing a car uh, or engineering classes. A lot of those things were taken out of, of public schools a long, long time ago in terms of tech classes and trade school classes. And you see it not only in motorsports, but you now hear about it in construction and a lot of air, a lot of other areas where they say, look, the inner city schools are not teaching kids how to use their hands, how to be engineers. You see that. And so now uh, for me, law was a viable option. It also was somebody who's a big nerd. I study a lot of history. I watch a lot of documentaries. I read a lot of books. For me, um, you know, eyes on the prize, the civil rights movement, Dr. Dr. King, um, Thurgood Marshall, all of those were kind of my heroes when I was a kid. And I thought being a lawyer was one of the top things that you could become as an African-American, to be a black lawyer, to be able to work on rights and issues and civil rights or issues that might have a great impact on your people. And it seemed like historically, um, black lawyers who have done that were you know, viewed as heroes, viewed as people who made significant change. And that, mod that motivated me to become a lawyer. So let's skip forward a bit to where you are at now at IMS and within IndyCar. Uh, in terms of being senior corporate counsel, it's not as if all that knowledge and work history has been forgotten with this new post as chief diversity officer. I'd love to just start at the beginning of this new development in your career, Jimmy. How does this come to you? How does this get proposed to you? Obviously, the Race for Equality and Change is in development for a little while, announced, uh, I believe, early July, if I remember correctly. But your formal uh, announcement in this post coming in October, but does this come to you in an email? Does someone come knock on your door? Does RP saunter in and sit down and say, Jimmy, got an idea. How does this come to you? Because you want to talk about different from what you've done so far in your life this is different it's also pretty darn big and important well first you should know that i'm still the lawyer as well the full-time senior corporate counsel yep. for as indycar so i'm doing both jobs but this actually started before um roger penske purchased the speedway in the series uh mark miles really started almost when I started working here back on May 2nd, 2016. Mark Miles and I started having conversations about things that we could do 
things that we can be engaged in and involved in to try to transform it. This has been a passion and on Mark's radar and one of his greater purposes uh, for the series and the facility for quite some time and Doug Bowles and Allison as well. We have a phenomenal leadership team that I think are pretty well regarded within the city as being leaders in diversity. And I think they knew that before I came here in the legal community itself, I've led, been on boards of different organizations, very involved in the legal community in terms of diversity initiatives. So I think that that was part of why I was brought on in addition to my legal skills was to give a different perspective about that. And what that led to is we formed a diversity committee uh, internally before um, Roger had bought the track that we were working on our internal um, hiring practices, looking at some of our metrics, our numbers, how we um, perform outreach in terms of getting applicants for different positions that was already in play um, before Roger came on. And then once Roger purchased the track, almost immediately, as you know, COVID hits and everything kind of gets focused on all of the things, all of the multiple of the things around COVID. And then George Floyd uh, is unfortunately murdered. And, and that, it, from my understanding, that brings about a conversation between Mark Miles and Roger Penske about the larger concept of diversity and diversity in motorsports. And Roger's reaction was instantaneous that we have to do something. He was prepared to do something. And he wanted to get something done right away. I got a phone call. I was at home uh, due to COVID and I was at home that morning. I think it was like six o'clock in the morning when Mark Miles called me and said, uh, you need to get here in like five to 10 minutes. Huh. And I said, "Okay, why? And he said, we need to put together a, a plan, a diversity plan. I've talked to Roger and we need you to put together a plan. And so Alex Damron, myself and Mark all sat in a room uh, for about four hours with Roger kind of bouncing in and out. And, and all of the, basically the core four of us came up with what is the race for equality and change. And then it was announced um, at Brickyard 400 weekend. And from there, we still are dealing with COVID and we're still trying to figure out what's going to go on with races and events, including the Indy 500, which had not ran yet. And, you know, as we're kind of figuring that out, people are, of course, asking, OK, you guys announced race for equality and change. What are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? What's the next step? What's the next action item behind the scenes? We're working on part of it, but we had not officially announced, OK, now we have someone who's running the program. And I I did not know it was going to be me because I'm again, I'm the still the lawyer. I'm still the lawyer for the track. I realized that it was a full time position. It's not a part time job. Um, and at some point, Mark came to me and said, you know, is this something that that you could and would want to lead? Um, while continuing to be the lawyer for the track. And I said, absolutely. And so I believe it was in October uh, that I was announced as the chief diversity officer. And it's really an honor uh, to do this because it's something that, you know, I love at base level. I love racing and I love motorsports. I've had a passion for it before I even knew what it was. And I love the concept that I can somehow help bring other people who love this sport to the track. Um, there's been some long-standing myths about the track. There's been some long-standing fear and trepidation about the trap and track and motorsports in general. And to be a part of such a great team that's all dedicated to tearing that down and changing the culture so that it's welcoming to all, truly, 
it's just phenomenal. I wake up every day energized and motivated uh, to do this job and my other job. Let me ask basic question on this job, this new role that's been added to your existing role. What does a chief diversity officer do on a daily basis? What things are you looking to improve, to change, to add, to remove? I can throw in a lot of things that would be supposition, but I don't know if what Jimmy McMillan's doing on his normal Monday morning, getting into work, focusing on, again, the uh, diversity side. I don't know if everybody knows what it is this new task actually entails. So I think it starts with making sure that our organization, uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the NTT IndyCar Series, and and IMS production is welcoming and inclusive to all that there are not barriers to entry and that that we are actually inviting and welcoming others to be a part of this sport in different levels. And why are we doing that? Well, one, it's the right thing to do. Um, We do not want to exclude folks, but two, there's very good business reason to be inclusive, right? I mean, everyone uh, who wants to buy a ticket here should be able to buy a ticket here and everyone who has skills and talents to work here should have that should be able to work here because they're gonna make our business better and everyone who has the ability to provide services here or to vend here uh, should be able to do that because they may be able to have services at a quality or a price that's better for the sport and, and allows it to continue. And so what we don't want is people to feel like that based on their race or gender or their religious beliefs or their sexual orientation, we don't want them to feel like there's some sort of invisible wall um, around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway or around our sport that says, no, 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 we don't want you here. That that can't uh, and will not survive or be good for us. And that my goal is to make sure that doesn't happen. And even if it's not happening, to make sure it's not perceived. Because sometimes it's about perception that's not real. But if you don't do anything to change that perception, then the perception will continue to exist. So my ideal is to try to stamp out those perceptions uh, as they may be. What does a chief diversity officer do? It depends on the day. Uh, one day I may be completely engulfed in matters related to hiring and recruiting. That means trying to take a position that is open here and then trying to target and outreach to different diverse populations through social media, through different uh, affinity organizations, national organizations, to try to get a different candidate pool than what we usually get to make sure it's not monolithic and that it's actually reflective of the larger community. And then working with our hiring managers to make sure that as through the, through the process, we're continuing to make sure at different stages that there's diversity at the interview phase and that there's diversity in the final selection phase. Obviously, we're not going through picking out this person's black, this person's white, this person's a woman, but we are trying to make sure that as much as we can, that there is representative diversity in the group. And at the end of the day, we're going to pick the best person for the job, but we want to make sure that that pool includes folks of all um, of all likes to be in the pool so that we are truly picking the best person for the job. The next part of my job, one day I may be working on procurement issues. That means the people who provide services uh, and supplies to the track. Why is that important? Well, you can't expect uh, individuals to invest in you if you're not willing to invest in them. And who we spend money on or who we spend money with certainly represents who we care about. 
We want folks to care about us. We want people to feel welcome. And we have to make an effort, a conscious effort, to make sure that we're spending money with MBEs and WBEs, that's minority mm-hmm. business enterprises and women business enterprises. And so a lot of my time is, is spent trying to identify those companies that we need services with and then talking to those companies about the type of services and trying to build a relationship where, whereby they can become preferred vendors uh, for some of the activities and events that we have here at the Speedway. On another day, I might be involved in NXT Youth Motorsports, which is one, one of our premier relationships that we have here at the track. Uh, it's run by Coach Rod Reed, um, and it's the kids that are uh, primarily African-American and Latino kids, both boys and girls, who are learning how to, also, uh, in addition to go-karting, it's a STEM program, it's a character development, pro- development program. So I'm working with NXG and its sponsors to figure out how we can grow and support that program and also adding additional pieces to it beyond go-karting. We're now planning on working with Indiana Black Expo and its performing arts program and on video piece. We're planning on working on working with IUPUI on a, on a business school, a school of business piece related to sales and sponsorship, but creating a pipeline through NXG into the sport for underrepresented people is a big part of my job. And not only working with them, but then some other organizations like Kids on Track and most recently starting to work with Soapbox Derby of Indianapolis. So I'm, so I'm working with a number of different groups around the city to make that happen. We're also out performing outreach to the community at large. And so that is working with organizations like the Indianapolis Urban League, Indianapolis Black Expo, uh, the uh, United Negro College Fund and other organizations that we support and sponsor. Uh, to perform outreach to get their uh, their input, involvement, and be active uh, in trying to get people from those organizations to come to the track, to be involved in the track, and be in- engaged in our activities. When that's not going on, I'm trying to keep up with Roger Penske as he starts new race teams. <laughs> he started he started to, as you know, one is Force Eat Indy, which is owned and operated by um, Rod Reed and is a primarily African-American team with African-American engineers and an African-American driver and Miles Rowe. And they are going to be competing in the F2000 series this year. I am super excited about that uh, program and working with Coach Reed on that. Then also, uh, Roger has also uh, helped to, is helping with Peretta Autosport, started by Beth Peretta. And this year they will be competing for a spot in the Indy 500 with driver Simona de Silvestre, uh, and she may even, if possible, uh, at some point run a full series. And so we're excited about that. And that team will be primarily uh, a primarily uh, woman-driven team with women, female engineers, female administrators. And so we've got a pipeline through both Peretta Autosport and Force Indy into the series for typically underrepresented folks. And trying to keep up with that, that path is part of my job. Uh, And then ultimately, we also are talking to different potential ownership, uh, trying to figure out is a way to diversify the ownership. You see it in NASCAR uh, with Michael Jordan and Pitbull, uh, who have recently took an ownership stake in NASCAR teams. We're trying to do the same and find and reach out to uh, and and feel any interest as it relates to potential ownership in the IndyCar series. We think we have a great opportunity for a potential owner, particularly a diverse owner to come in and be involved in the sport. And so that's part of my responsibilities as well. I feel like I need to come over and massage your shoulders and get you ready. Cause it feels like, <laughs> Jesus. 
You work I would 23 hours a day, Jimmy. That's insane. That's insane. I, I will actually accept that offer. <laughs> Uh, again, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because, good Lord, it's beautiful is what it is because you've accepted a leadership role here in something that has been needed. There's no there's no tokenism here. There's no uh, silliness here. This is an initiative to bring more of us to motor racing by us i mean granted you don't have to be from america but from those who follow and love what we do here in indycar racing and at the speedway is to just bring more of us the entire community of us there that's something that i'd love to close on here jimmy and you mentioned obviously force indy being established Prada Autosport being established. This is the part that inspires me and invigorates me so much. And that is sometimes more than just accepting any and all job applications that might come in, there's some effort required to go out and say, you know, as you mentioned, not everybody, not all of us would know or he's even aware that their skills and passions uh, might be something where they could find employment in motor racing, whether it's turning a wrench, managing, engineering, driving. There's often that step that is lacking. And I know that there aren't many teams in motor racing, not limiting this to IndyCar, but there aren't many teams in motor racing, professional motorsports, that make an active effort to say, let me actually go beyond the resumes that just happened to land in my inbox. Let me go out and look for some really sharp people, men, women, people of color across the board. Let me make some effort to go out and invite a more diverse group of people to be a part of what we're trying to do here. Can you speak to that motivation and that initiative through your job? Jimmy, and also the the core, I guess, tenet of race for equality and change, because that's a lot different than, well, we just need a, a black guy, black girl, Latino woman. Just we need a couple of different types of people. Then we could say job done, problem solved. This isn't a, quote, problem to solve. This is a, a changing of how the sport, at least from our little world in open wheel, conducts its own business and thinks of itself, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And I, I think it's important to realize that while while the discussion is about race and gender, I view my role and I view our role as growing the fan base as a whole. I look at those images of back in the 60s and 70s on qualifications day when there were no seats in the stand and I, stands. And I remember when I used to come to the Brickyard 400 and it was as packed as it was for the Indy 500. I remember those those times. And somehow we've got to make sure that we're not just capturing diverse fans. We're, we, we need to be speaking to all of our fans. But in this race for equality and change, think about the members of the community you may reach out to and the methodologies that we may change that may have a global impact on all of our fans. Um, when you talk about talking to young people, we're talking to all young people. 
And there's going to be some people that will, if we do this right in terms of educating those who don't know anything about motorsports, I think a big piece of this program has to be educating the person who hasn't grown up with motorsports, never been around a race, doesn't know why anybody would want to watch a race for two, three, four hours, to be able to educate them on what they're seeing, viewing, and why some people are so passionate about. That's going to be a message that's going to help us across the board, whether a kid is, is a young white kid who, who, who may not have you know, had any exposure to racing, uh, or of a young black kid who may not have had any exposure to racing. But seeing the need for that young black kid and sending the message to all is what's going to get us not only the young black kid, but also the young white kid. This sport needs more fans. And I say that, period. No matter what color they are, no matter what race or gender they are, we need more fans. The great part about it is a focus on those fans that we know we don't have will actually reap benefits across the board, in my opinion. And so that, to me, is one of the motivating and driving factors that I think that larger purpose of bringing, again, welcoming and an inclusive nature to all that includes everybody that we might be missing is how this is all going to turn out to be for the betterment of not only our diversity efforts, but I think our business as a whole. I assume you know this, Jimmy, in case you don't. Uh, I'll, I'll overstate the obvious knowing all that you have achieved so far, all of the things that you have done to pursue and take hold of and embrace excellence in your life. This newest chapter in your career might end up being the most important thing you do. You've obviously dealt with a lot of pressure in your life. Most people who achieve excellence do. I don't know if you feel the weight of what it is you've been asked to do, what you've willfully chosen to do and been doing here. Uh, but <laughs> this is a lot of us do a lot of things in this sport. Most of it fairly disposable. <laughs> I just hope you realize that what you're doing. Wow. Uh, with, with achieving the goals that you and the leadership team have established, this can absolutely change IndyCar and IMS's future. That might make me want to stay in bed all day. Cause I don't know how well I do with handling pressure, Jimmy, but good Lord. Um, I'm so happy uh, to know that you love what you're doing and cannot wait to continue making more and more progress with us on a daily basis. I appreciate it. You know, when I think about the pressure, I think about Willie T trying to qualify and the pressure that he must have been under the first time he tried to qualify, you know, and, and ended up uh, not having equipment to go forward that he felt safe in and then coming back. I think about Charlie Wiggins, who never had the opportunity to run here and the pressure uh, he must be under. And I think about all of the folks who wanted the opportunity to work at just to work at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, not to race, just to be here. And I think about how blessed I am to have this opportunity. And the only pressure I feel is to relieve the pressure from those NXG kids, those NXG youth motorsports kids, and those kids who don't even live in Indianapolis and have the benefit of NXG youth motorsports. But they're at home somewhere watching a race. Their parents have no clue what they're watching or why they're sitting in front of a TV for hours watching this race. And they're saying, I want to drive cars. And they're 
parents are giving them a basketball or a football and saying, well, you better kick this $10 basketball because I'm not buying you a $400,000 car. I feel the pressure of trying to give them a pathway to live their dreams because I'm living mine. And it wouldn't be fair for me to be able to live my dreams the way I am as a black man and not be able to try to create that opportunity for other people of color and for other women. I would never want somebody to be out there and want to at least live this life and I haven't done everything I can in my power to try to give them the opportunity to do so while I have it. And that's what mo- that's the only pressure I have, is to relieve their pressure of not being able to and not having a chance. Greatly appreciate the time that Jimmy took sharing his story with us, also his vision for the race for equality and change, and also how he is trying to bring his work, his duties as IndyCars and IMS's new chief diversity officer to bear. If you haven't visited our website before, marshallpruittpodcast.com, all kinds of good stuff there. More than a thousand episodes spanning sports cars, open wheel, a lot of personality features, in-car audio, ambient racing audio, just a lot of stuff. Some of it nonsense, hopefully some that you might enjoy. Again, marshallpruittpodcast.com. We also have a little subscribe page there, so you can hopefully follow along when all the new content comes out. All right, well, I am Marshall Pruitt. This show is brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. Thank you for listening.